We're going to be continuing in our current sermon series today entitled The Good Life, a study of the Beatitudes from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And as both Daniel and Aaron already mentioned, these Beatitudes exist as eight profoundly countercultural statements, a picture, if you will, of the good life, of the life approved of by God. Jesus' picture of the person who is truly blessed, truly happy. And as Daniel mentioned last week, starting in the fourth beatitude, there is a dramatic shift. In the first three, we are invited to look inward, to see our own sinfulness, our depravity, and, and in seeing it, to look to Christ, to have that need met, to be, to be made whole again. But starting with the fourth beatitude, the focus shifts away from self to the world around us. Last week, we learned that the first way we are to engage the world around us is with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this week, we will see that we are encouraged to engage the world around us with mercy. So I invite you now, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he, Jesus, sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would give me the courage to get out of your way so that you might speak clearly to our hearts. God, I pray that as, as Trevor just prayed, that we would be transformed as we encounter you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Once again, as has been the norm thus far in the Beatitudes, Jesus throws a seemingly paradoxical statement at us. What he is saying appears to be the exact opposite of what we intuitively believe to be true. Because deep down, if we're honest, we actually believe that the happy ones are the ones who receive mercy, not give it away. We want to be the one who wins the lottery, not the one who gives away the winning lottery ticket. Yet Jesus is arguing that the opposite is in fact true. That deeply happy, approved of by him, are those who extend mercy to others. That the good life is a life full of giving and not receiving mercy. So this morning, in order to help us to see if what Jesus is saying is true, I'd like for us to look at what is probably Jesus' most famous teaching on this subject, on mercy. 
and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's three things that I want you to see in this parable. First, what is mercy? Second, the barriers to mercy. And then lastly, how to become more merciful. What is mercy? The barriers to mercy and how to become more merciful. So we'll begin now by reading this famous parable. It's on the screen behind me as well. This is Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Possibly a familiar story to some of you, and as we dive in, the first thing I want you to recognize is, is what is mercy? How does this parable help us to define what mercy really is? The story ends with the lawyer declaring and Jesus confirming that one of the men, the Samaritan, was merciful, and yet the other two were not. Therefore, in order to understand what mercy is, we simply need to discern the difference between the Samaritan and the other two men. So what is the difference between these men? Before I point out the difference, I want to first highlight what the difference is not. Hear me on this. The difference between these three men is not a matter of perception. Notice from the text that all three of the men noticed the man on the side of the road. The text makes plain that they all saw him. Therefore, we know that to be merciful must be more than simply noticing the suffering of others. But even further than that, I think it's fair to say that all three of them probably felt bad about what happened to the man on the side of the road. Now, I know I'm kind of reading into the text here, but I find it hard to believe that the first two men weren't at all bothered by this man's pain. I think it's safe to say that they all felt sorry for the guy. Therefore, according to this parable, mercy is not not only more than seeing, but it's also more than feeling bad about the suffering of others. 
So what is then the difference between these men? See, the real difference between the first two men and the Samaritan is that the Samaritan was the only one who acted upon his sadness. As one commentator states, mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is not only to notice the misery of those around us, but is also to be so undone by that misery that you can't help but respond, that you can't help but get involved. So before we go any further, I think we need to begin by asking ourselves a hard question. Do we, church, do we see the misery around us? Are we noticing the hurt that is happening in the lives of the people around you? If not, I want to begin by challenging you in two ways. First, you may need to move outside of your comfort zone a bit more. You may, in fact, be living a life that is too isolated, too protected, too separated from people that are different than you. And second, you may need to learn how to ask better questions. Because the truth is, no matter how isolated you might be, the people that are in your life are hurting. And if you're willing to ask the right questions and willing to be vulnerable yourself, you will be amazed at the misery that's right in front of you. So we can certainly all grow in our efforts to see the misery around us. However, according to our text, to be merciful is more than just to see it. It's to do something about it, which brings me to my second point, the barriers to mercy. Because unfortunately, even when we see people's misery, we see people's suffering, we often fail to do anything about it. Or maybe I should speak for myself. I often fail to do anything about it. So what is it that stops us from being more merciful people? It stops us from being a more merciful church. I think the token answer to this question is probably the answer that the two men in our parable would have given. It's that we're too busy. We don't have enough time. We, we, we see the hurt, but we just don't have the time to do anything about it. I want to push back on that response this morning I don't buy it. I think we have plenty of time, as is evidenced by how we make time for the things that are important to us. For example, a friend of mine invited me in 2011 to go to the Masters Golf Tournament. Somehow I found time to be there. Last year, my brother and sister-in-law offered to treat me and my wife to a vacation. We found some time to be there. When my children perform at their school or have a sporting event or a dance recital, I find some time to be there. So clearly the problem is, is not time. So then what is the problem? Why are, what are our biggest barriers to mercy? I think the real barrier to our being more merciful as often is that we feel inadequate. We feel like we don't have the ability to help. We see people around us hurting, but we feel like we don't know how to help or we don't actually have anything to offer. Let me try to make this a little more real. 
Last week during both services, if you were here, there was a lady sleeping on the bench next to the bathroom. She was clearly very tired, possibly had a long night, probably hurting in some way. Did you see her? There's a pretty good chance you saw her, but maybe the more probing question is, is did you move towards her with mercy? Pastor, I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't either. But what I do know is that the more merciful we become, the more we are inclined to try. The more merciful we become, we become less paralyzed by our ignorance or our supposed inadequacies. No doubt helping someone who's in extreme poverty is, is very complex. But at the same time, I wonder if there's not something that each and every one of us can do when it comes to showing mercy. Last week, my wife and I watched a movie that reminded me of how beautifully simple mercy can be. The movie's called Wonder. It's a story of a young boy named August Pullman. Fictional story. He was born with some very noticeable facial differences. And the story begins with little Augie transitioning out of homeschooling into middle school. And for those of you who are in middle school or remember middle school, you can imagine how hard this transition is going to be. And Augie is picked on from day one, bullied, ignored. It's awful. And you can see in the film how close Augie gets to even giving up on life entirely. But the whole trajectory of the movie changes almost in an instant. And it happens when another fifth grade boy named Jack Will sees Augie in his misery and chooses not to walk by. But he moves toward Augie. And there's this scene where Jack chooses to sit with Augie at lunchtime. And then Jack intentionally brings shame upon himself in order to make Augie feel more accepted. And and if the scene doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you might not be alive. It's it's a beautiful picture of mercy. There's this clip that reminded me that mercy is is often not as complicated as we think. It reminded me how mercy often doesn't require a lot of money or experience or, or know-how because each and every one of us has something immeasurable to offer to those around us who are suffering, and that is ourselves, which ironically is actually what people often need more than anything in their suffering. They need you. They need your presence. They need you to come alongside them and walk with them in their pain. And yet most of us, we know this to be true. I haven't said anything that novel. And yet we still struggle to be more merciful. Amen? Which brings me to my third and final point. How do we grow in becoming more merciful? We know that we need to, we want to even, and yet so often we struggle or fail to grow in this area. We've seen from the parable that to be merciful is to see, be saddened by, and move toward the misery in the lives of those around us. And 
And yet we've seen how our fear and self-doubt often paralyzes us and prevents us from getting involved. So how do we overcome that fear? How do we overcome that self-doubt and grow in this area of mercy? And I think the answer lies in the second half of our verse 7 in Matthew 5, the Beatitude. Listen again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, at first glance, it appears as though Jesus is saying that if we are merciful, then he will respond by being merciful back to us, almost like some sort of a bribe. However, we know that can't be what Jesus is saying here because that would go against the very essence of the gospel message, that we love him because he first loved us. So then what is Jesus saying here, and how does this verse help us to become more merciful? I want to go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan one last time and see if we can't find the answer there. What I'd like for you to recognize in this parable is that most people often miss the point of the parable. They read the parable and then they wrongly conclude that the message of the story is to be helpful to people in need like the Good Samaritan. Now, no doubt that message is in there somewhere, but it's certainly not the main point of the story. Look back at verse 25 and 29 and look at who the original audience is. It's, it's a lawyer who's seeking to justify himself. What we know about a first century Jewish lawyer is that their specialty was Jewish law. Therefore, Jesus would not have been teaching this man anything by telling him to be nice to strangers. He would have known that full well. So Jesus clearly has another far weightier message for this keeper of the law. But in order for the lawyer to receive this weightier message, he must first rightly identify the characters in the story. You see, when Jesus tells a parable, we have to understand who we are in the story and who the characters are. And spoiler alert, we need to do the same if we're going to understand this parable. Because the story carries no weight if the lawyer believes that he is the Samaritan in the story. Because then he would be walking away from the parable seeing himself as already justified and in need of nothing. But Jesus' intent is not for the lawyer to identify himself as the Samaritan, but rather as the battered traveler lying by the side of the road half dead. He's to see himself as the guy the Samaritan helps. And, and now the, the meaning of the parable changes dramatically because no longer does the lawyer get to be the hero in the story. As my friend Phil Hissom says, he's not the one who has it all together and is able to show mercy. He's the one who needs mercy. And the lawyer, and probably more importantly, us, recognizes that he is not the Samaritan, but the man lying half dead. And when he does that, it becomes clear who the Samaritan is, who the real hero of the story is. It's Jesus. And now that we've got the characters right, we are able to understand the point of the story. And, and the point is that you and I, no matter how good we are or think we are, are desperately in need of mercy. But the parable is, a, is an encouraging story, right? Because it's a reminder that the Good Samaritan has come, that 
that he didn't walk by, that he didn't leave us in the ditch to die, but Jesus came to our rescue. He gave his life so that we might have eternal life. That's great news, Pastor, but how does that help us become more merciful? And what in the world does that have to do with our beatitude? You see, there's two things that happen when this penny drops about you and I being the one in the ditch, desperately in need of mercy, and Jesus being the good Samaritan who comes to our rescue. First, we begin to look at those around us very differently. You see, it's, it's really hard to look down on people when you're lying half dead on the side of the road. When you begin to realize how much of a mess you really are, how needy you are of rescue, the, the result is that we will begin to have more empathy for others. We will begin to look differently at the people around us. However, if we think of ourselves as the Samaritan in the story, as the hero, then we're going to continue to have a hard time developing a heart of mercy for those around us. But secondly, the amazing thing about mercy is that to the extent that we come to grips with the mercy that has been granted to us, the more mercy will flow out of us. I think we probably all have countless stories of how we've seen this to be true, but the one that immediately comes to mind for me happened years ago when I was doing campus ministry as a part of a, part of a large organization. And I was stationed in Branson, Missouri for the summer, and the staff and student leaders had arrived in Branson a few days early to get ready for this summer project. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's two months of nonstop exhausting ministry. And the, the, the head of the collegiate ministry, Mike Jordahl, a man who oversaw thousands, about, I think about 1,500 college ministers, was coming to do a training for us before we welcomed the students. And without telling anyone, Mike arrived a day early, and he, by hand, washed every single one of our cars. Didn't, didn't let anyone know he was going to do it. And, I'll be honest, I don't remember a thing he said in the training, but I remember that he washed my car by hand. And that small display of mercy, of, of seeing my suffering, my, my dirty car, and doing something about it impacted me profoundly. It empowered me to love and to serve, to be merciful to the students that were under my care in a, in a whole new way. That's what the second half of the beatitude is all about. Jesus is not saying, if you show mercy to others, then I will reward you with some of my mercy. But rather he's saying, if you have truly received my mercy, then you will inevitably be merciful to others. That's how mercy works. And it's this idea that I think under, helps us understand how we are to grow in becoming more merciful. According to verse 7, to grow in mercy is simply to become more and more aware of, amazed by God's mercy towards us. Because as we do that, the inevitable result is that his mercy will produce an overflow of mercy in our lives to those around us. That's what happens. For those of you who've been utilizing the prayer liturgy from the prayer school, you've been praying to this end every day. 
In the very last prayer comes this line. It says, God, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Church, that's my hope and prayer for you, for me, for this church, that we would become more and more aware of God's incredible mercy towards us, and the result would be a flood of mercy to those around us. And the crazy thing is that when that happens, when we drink in God's mercy to the fullness, our mercy towards others is transformed. It becomes kind of radical. Because when we really grasp God's mercy towards us, how unworthy we are, we will no longer simply move towards those who are hurting, but we will also move towards those who have hurt you. And that's a whole new kind of mercy. I want to conclude with two stories that are pictures of this most extravagant expression of mercy. Mercy towards those who've hurt us. The first one is probably familiar. The second story, maybe not so much. The first story comes from the very end of Jesus' life, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. If you can remember, the crowds are are mocking him, they're spitting on him, they're laughing at him. The very people who had nailed him to the cross were delighting in the misery of this innocent man. But how does Jesus respond? He prays for those who have wronged him in the most egregious possible ways. He cries out to his heavenly Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus, the Father of mercy, extends immeasurable mercy to the crowd, to us, although they clearly deserved the opposite. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. The second story is from the late Corey Ten Boom. Corey was a Dutch watchmaker who was most known for her efforts to help Numerous Jews escaped the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And unfortunately, Corey was eventually caught and arrested and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And I'm going to read an account from Corey's biography. It's a post-war meeting with a guard from the concentration camp where she was sentenced to. And she says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, her sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, he said, to think as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ has died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. 
I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While in it, my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Church, I I hope and pray that, like Corey, we can drink in more and more of God's mercy towards us each and every day. And then, as a result, His forgiveness would pour out of us, even to those who have wronged us. Because Jesus' promise here in Matthew 5 is true. Happy are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, this beatitude in particular is, is hard to live. We can't, just like Corey said, Lord, we can't. We can't do it. We need your forgiveness, your mercy to flow out of us. And so, God, we ask you by your spirit, as we receive your mercy, would we be transformed and become more merciful like you? And would this city be transformed by this flood of mercy that flows to those who are hurting all around us? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.